Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Episode 8, Season 2. We are moving right along. Man, when I started this, whatever this is, project, undertaking, vanity, experiment, I talked a big game about multiple episodes and many seasons, but deep down I didn't have any clue if I would make it past an episode or two, if I would have anyone willing to listen, if I would have anyone willing to engage, and probably most importantly, if I would have anything to say. Still not sure if I have anything to say, but I'm excited to be here with y'all today, deep into season two, almost finished with season two, and to think about how many topics we have discussed. Not I, but we, because the beautiful part of this podcast is the feedback I get and the conversations I have with people some of whom I'm very close to, some of whom I'm only tangentially close to, some of whom I've never met before in my life. And the reflection that comes out of that, both collectively and, and, and personally on my end. So just want to share my excitement with you guys that the journey continues, the journey into whiteness. Once again, I'm your host, Jimmy Lincoln. And we're going to take this trip into my life and discuss the concept of whiteness and white supremacy and white privilege and racism and how all of those have intersected with my own experiences and the experiences of people who have been in my life, how I've been taught to socialize into a world of white supremacy and systemic racism and the role I have played both implicitly and explicitly, consciously and unconsciously in perpetuating injustices and stereotypes. That's the big umbrella. And for my repeat listeners, and hopefully there's many of them by this point, you already know all that and you're probably sick of this intro, but you also know that this might be somebody's first time. Somebody might have randomly stumbled onto episode eight of season two, and that might be their first exposure to this. And I want to make sure they they have at least some idea of where we've been and where we're headed. So recap. We've been moving through my adolescence in season two, almost exclusively focused on middle school and high school events. Talked about everything from black women's bodies dress codes in middle schools, white boys being able to get away with mischief and being obnoxious and breaking laws and being juvenile delinquents in a way that that young black boys are just not able to do, not if they value their life in any way. We've talked about my experiences with wearing a Malcolm X beanie. So we've covered a lot of ground. And today's topic, we're going to still be in my high school life, and we're going to talk about something that that just has been a central part of my life for as long as I can remember, 
and still continues to be to a certain degree, even though my experiences with this thing that we're gonna, that you're gonna hear about in a second are much different in the last 10 to 20 years than they were in the first 10 to 20 years of my life. And today's topic also is a topic that was touched on way back in season one, early in season one. And so I guess for my repeat listeners too, you'll see, see some tie-ins, some allusions, some callbacks to earlier episodes and see how, how I progressed and how this, this thing, I'm trying to be mysterious and not give it away, but it's going to, some of y'all are probably already picking up on it, how this thing has, has changed and maybe not changed over time. So today's episode is going to reach back into my youth, but also reach forward into my adulthood. And today's topic is simple. Football. Motherfucking football. I have no idea why I needed to insert that curse word, but it just sounded right. Motherfucking football. That phrase right there can have so much meaning, both positive and negative. But we're going to talk about my experiences primarily as a high school football player and how whiteness played a big role in my my success as a high school football player. And I'll trust me, I'll make sure I define success clearly because I do not want any of my listeners to be under the misapprehension that I was a good football player because I was not. But whatever relative success I was able to have was directly connected to the fact that I was white. I promise you, if everything about me as a human being was identical to who I am now and who I was my whole life, except that I had black skin, that I would not have had this quote-unquote relative success. I would not have been a high school quarterback. That's today's topic. How my whiteness allowed me to play high school quarterback. And then as we talk about that topic, like always, right? We never just stay in one era. We're going to kind of cycle forward and discuss some changes, both good and bad, that have maybe happened in the way white folks, white adults particularly, interact with and engage with black athletes, black high school football players, and black young people in general, black high school students in general. So let's start. Let's start to build this building from the ground floor. Back to my primary thesis. And that is, once again, that my whiteness has a direct causational relationship to the fact that I was able to be a high school quarterback. And that if I had not been white, I would not have been a high school quarterback for my high school in the fall of 1995. That's my thesis for today's episode. That's the case I'm going to make for y'all. And like always, it's circumstantial and complex, but I hope by the end to leave you, to leave you thinking about high school sports quite differently than maybe you think about them now. Or at least ask yourself some questions. You know how much I like. Like those questions that we ask ourselves, that we ask each other. 
So let me set the stage before we we jump right in. Let me intro this. I, as as I've mentioned in earlier episodes, and many of my listeners probably already know this, I, and like many of my listeners, many of my male listeners, grew up playing football. Grew up playing tackle football from the age of eight to the age of 18. So third grade to 12th grade. And if I have a crowning achievement, and in my mind I do, and everyone's crowning athletic achievement, those of us who are high school athletes, is is different and unique. But my crowning achievement is pretty basic and nothing to be that excited about. But for me, it still forms a bigger part of my identity, a larger part of my identity than I than I really wish it did. And then I'm a bit ashamed to admit, but my crowning achievement as an athlete was that I was the starting quarterback on my high school football team, my senior year of high school. That's it. For those of y'all who don't know me, I'm sorry if you're disappointed that that crowning achievement wasn't bigger. All district, all state setting records. None of that happened. And we'll get to those details in a second. But I need you to understand the context of where we're going. My crowning achievement as an athlete, something that I still look back on with fondness and pride, something that still informs my sense of self, as I mentioned more than I wish it did, is that I was the starting quarterback for the Harrisonburg High School Blue Streak football team in the fall of 1995. And... If there is an and, I guess we can sweeten it a little bit, and that football team that I was the starting quarterback of won our district and made it to the playoffs that year. So not only was I the starting quarterback of my high school's football team, but we were a successful team that year. That's my crowning athletic achievement. That's the athletic achievement that I still drop in casual conversation from time to time. And if I'm being 100% honest, We all know why I drop it from time to time. Because it has a certain cachet, a certain connotation. And that people that didn't grow up with me, automatically, it gives me some athletic street cred, for for lack of a better phrase. Ooh, you played quarterback? Now, typically, typically, my ego is not so fragile that I just randomly bring it up. But if I'm in conversation with somebody, adult or maybe a student that I'm currently teaching, and they ask if I played high school sports, I'm obviously not going to lie. And I say yes, and then they ask which sport, and I say football, and then they ask which position, and I say quarterback. And then I almost always get that reaction, a little light up in their face. Because in American culture, who the fuck doesn't love a quarterback? They are the pinnacle of not just football success, but like athletic success, right? There's no position, no player more important than the fucking quarterback. And so I take pride in the fact, more, like I said, much more pride than I should based on my actual accomplishments and based on what's really important in life. But I take a way more pride than I should in the fact that I was the starting quarterback on a really good high school football team. And... I wouldn't have been the starting quarterback on a really successful high school football team if I hadn't been white. That's the first part of that statement. Whether I admit it or not, I've known my whole life. 
The first part of the statement being the pride I take. The second part of the statement, I've only come to that conclusion in the last year or two. And it kind of sucks, obviously. Nobody wants to feel like they receive something without having actually earned it based on their skills or abilities. But I've got to admit it. It doesn't change the pride I feel in it, or maybe a little bit, but but it's the truth. If I had not been white, if I had been black, Hispanic, Asian American, any other ethnic racial group than white, I would not have been high school quarterback for my high school football team in Harrisonburg, Virginia in 1995. Now, dear listener, you may be asking yourself, why? Why, Jimmy, do you come to such a conclusion? There's a lot of evidence, some of it really concrete, some of it much more circumstantial. So let's break it down. Let's look at the concrete evidence, first of all. Then we'll look at the circumstantial evidence. Then we'll talk about some changes that that have come to high school sports in the last 25 years, especially in, in the South, and how those changes are seemingly really good, but also a troubling development that I see and that I unfortunately participate in when it comes to high school sports, especially sports like football and basketball, the popular sports. So here's the concrete evidence that my whiteness played a key role in me being a quarterback of my high school football team. Evidence number one, uh, what do they call it in the court? When they're in a, like law and order, right? I feel like they don't say evidence number one. The phrase is, is leaving my brain as we speak. Because evidence number one just doesn't have that elan that I'm looking for, that flow. But for lack of a better phrase, we're going to say evidence number one. My high school, at the time that I played, 1995, which is eons ago and also incredibly recently, had never had a black quarterback. Had black students. Had incredible black athletes. Some of whom had gone on to play in the NFL. Shout out to Howard Stevens and his family, if any of them are listening. But had never had a black quarterback. I can't believe... There's no way anyone in their right mind can convince me that race didn't have something to do with that. Now, where I grew up was not an area with a large black population. So, yes, there is a numbers game. But even in my short time being involved with the Harrisonburg High School football program, I was exposed to many incredible black athletes, played football with many incredible black athletes, many of whom would have been, I believe, much more successful at the quarterback position than I was. But we'll keep it simple for now. Up until probably the 21st century, as far as I know, the high school I went to had never had a black quarterback.
That's my first piece of concrete evidence. My second piece of concrete evidence is that my high school head football coach, unbeknownst to me at the time, I've only heard this story as an adult, told one of my peers, a classmate who was the same age as me, who I played freshman football with, who was an incredible freshman football quarterback, told this young man, either as a freshman or sophomore, early in his high school career, that a black quarterback would never play for him, that he would never put a black quarterback on his team or on the field. And this head coach had no trouble using black athletes in any other position on the field, but told my friend that a black quarterback would never play for him. And this friend of mine, who was my exact age and my grade and wasn't stratospherically more talented quarterback than I was. Now, is it possible that this friend of mine would not have been able to play for some other reason by the time we got to 11th and 12th grade? Certainly. This friend of mine, as I'm sure he would admit himself, was not the, the world's most conscientious student, although he's brilliant as fuck but wasn't always someone who took school seriously. So possibly maybe he wouldn't have been academically eligible or possibly maybe he would have gotten hurt in between the ages of 14 and 18. There's a million things that could have happened that could have prevented him from being the quarterback. But you're not going to tell me that the fact that my high school had never had a black quarterback and the fact that he was told by our head coach that, he, that this head coach would never start a black quarterback. You can't tell me that those aren't meaningful pieces of evidence. But it gets, there's more. Jury. There's more. And we're kind of going from more concrete to more circumstantial. As this conversation continues. Many of the black athletes that played football for this coach have told me since then of experiences they had that made it feel like that though they were welcome on the team, they were not welcome into the family of Harrisonburg High School football. And I have one concrete example of that that I myself read or saw or experienced firsthand. And so I'm not telling you that this high school football coach of mine was a card-carrying member of the KKK or was an outright white supremacist. And I'm sure he himself would say, perhaps accurately, that he didn't see color. I'm not sure if I buy that from anybody, but especially from him. But I am telling you, that though I never heard him tell my peer that he would never start a black quarterback, when that peer told me of that story when we were adults, I had no trouble believing it. And when I've spoken to other friends of mine, other black friends of mine who have played football for this coach and played football for this program, they all had similar stories of being of perceiving that our coach didn't care for them and love for love them in the way that he did his white players. And I can give you one concrete example of what I mean by they were welcome on the team but not welcome into the family. 
that were welcome to play for Harrisonburg High School, but they better know their place. This football coach, my senior year of high school, was being interviewed by the newspaper. And he was asked about a teammate of mine, a black teammate of mine who played defense. One of the best high school defensive football players I've ever seen in my life with my own two eyes. In fact, for my faithful listeners, it's the same individual who was the subject of, I believe it was episode four in season one of the Pee Wee football story where a Pee Wee football coach is referring to him as running like a deer and having a head up his ass. Having his head up his ass, not a head. That would be an entirely different idiom if you just, imagine if people said that, like he has a head up his ass, not his head. Like, what the fuck would that idiom even mean? Sorry. Digress. So same football player who has an eight, nine, ten-year-old was referred to by his white peewee football coach as having run like a deer, but having his head up his ass, is now in 12th grade, a member of my team, the team of which I'm the starting quarterback for. And he is incredible. He is everything I'm not on the football field. He's dominant. He's eye-catching. You can't, you couldn't have not watched our games and, and not noticed him. You couldn't have watched our games and not noticed him. Sorry for that double negative that didn't make any sense. Sometimes double, double negatives work. That one, I don't know where I was headed. You couldn't have watched our games in the fall of 95 and not, Noticed how successful this teammate of mine was. How incredible he was at his position. And my coach, the same coach who had told another peer of mine who wasn't on the team that a black quarterback would never start for him. The same coach who had never started a black quarterback. My coach, when being interviewed about this teammate, in the newspaper, on the record, and I know it was on the record because I read the fucking story in the newspaper. In the fall of 95, it's probably in some archive somewhere of the Daily News Record, the Harrisonburg, Virginia newspaper, told this reporter about my black teammate, who was an incredible player and having an incredible season and being looked at by various colleges, told this reporter on the record that my black teammate was a good player, but that he wasn't, and that he in this case was my coach, he wasn't sure if he was going to be academically eligible to receive a college scholarship. Now think about that for a fucking second. Especially my white listeners who've maybe played high school football or interacted with high school football coaches. Think about why in the fuck he felt the need to share that fact with a newspaper reporter so that it could be published for everyone to see, including college coaches and college recruiters, why in the world he would share that in public? Because I guarantee you he wouldn't have said the same thing about a white athlete, a white teammate of mine. Because college football coaches look to high school football coaches as gatekeepers and guides. They use them in their recruitment process. They use them to get insights and information on these football players that they're recruiting. And so when my high school coach announces to the world that my teammate, who was an incredible football player, 
and who may or may not have been struggling academically. I honestly don't know. I know he graduated. I know he went on to career success in his life. But I don't know if he was struggling academically or not. And honestly, that's irrelevant to this point. Because if a coach cared about that young man and loved that young man and welcomed him into the family, the coach would have only said he's a great player and any college would be lucky to have him. That's what a coach says about a player that he loves. And many of my peers who played on that team have stories about how they felt like when it came time to graduate, white players were given every opportunity, every springboard, every every bit of love possible from the coaching staff and that black players were often either talked about as my my defensive superstar teammate was or just not talked about at all. So we've got those evidence is starting to pile up. Never had a black quarterback started from a high school. A black peer of mine had been told by the coach that a black quarterback would never start. A superstar black teammate of mine has his academic reputation impunged in public. And I'm not saying that Academics don't matter. In fact, I'm going to, by the end of this podcast, make the exact opposite argument. All I'm saying is that's not the coach's place to say publicly, especially if you care about the kid, especially if you're trying to help him get a college scholarship. You don't announce to the world that he's not going to be academically eligible or that he may not be academically eligible or that he's struggling academically. All that does is, A, hurt his recruitment and certainly reinforce racial stereotypes. So whether the coach was doing that on purpose or not, that's the impact of his actions and his comments. But we've got a fourth piece of evidence. And what might be the most damning piece of evidence, and the hardest for me to admit, because I love playing quarterback. I love football. I know a lot about football. I was a smart football player, but I was no fucking good. No good. Not fast, not strong, not a great arm. Somewhat accurate, but... In no way based on physical abilities should I have been playing quarterback for that team. And yet I was. In fact, I've been playing quarterback my whole life up to that point. And the more I think back on it, I don't really know why other than the fact that I was white and kind of tall. And even for most of my career, I wasn't that tall. By this point in high school, I was tall. But most of my career, I wasn't that tall. But I was white, had a loud voice, was smart, understood plays, could remember them, could communicate them clearly to my teammates. So I guess I had some of those quote-unquote intangibles that anybody who keeps up with football knows that the unwritten rule that only white players and white athletes are allowed to have intangibles. Think about when you watch the NFL draft. Matter of fact, I'm recording this episode as the 2021 NFL draft is ongoing. But when I think about playing quarterback most of my life, if I'm being 100% honest, it wasn't based on my ability to play quarterback. It was based on my ability to look like I played quarterback. I was tall. I was white. I was loud. I was smart. I looked like a quarterback. But I wasn't actually any good at the position. Or not that good. 
certainly not good enough that there weren't other people on that team, black teammates of mine, who could have been better, including my friend who never even was on the team by that point, who was told as a young man that he would never get a chance to play the position he so dearly wanted to play and would have been so amazing at. Like, this kid was as intelligent as I was and 10 times the athlete. And I'd seen it firsthand on our freshman football team. Apparently, it was okay for black kids to play quarterback as a freshman on a freshman football team, but not on the varsity, at least in the program I played for. Now, some of y'all might be thinking, well, maybe there's other factors that made you the ideal candidate. And maybe, but I want to add this to the mix. I didn't have a good relationship with this coach. I only appeared to be a good candidate for quarterback in terms of being smart, loud, sort of tall. And I was, an, you know, better than okay student. But I've been suspended as a junior in high school for smoking marijuana on a school field trip. I'd gotten into arguments with this very coach about my refusal to take part in a pregame prayer that he liked to say every Friday night before we took the field. We could do a whole entire podcast on, on that nonsense. I'd gotten into an argument with that coach about my refusal to stand at other sporting events for the national anthem. We could do an entire podcast on that. I backed down on the national anthem stance of mine, but not on the team prayer stance of mine. So this idea that I was the best man for the job just doesn't hold weight when we look at all of the preponderance of evidence. Never had a black quarterback started for my team. What he said to my peer, what he said about my teammate, the fact that I was not a good quarterback, and the fact that if you looked at it objectively, even those quote-unquote intangibles, intangible, untangible, intangible is the word, I know that, but I just wanted to say untangible again, it sounded fun. I didn't even necessarily meet the bar when it came to that. So how the fuck did I end up playing quarterback? My whiteness had to have played a role. Had to have played a role. Now, the good news is, and I think even this coach of mine was evolving. He has since retired, but I think he was evolving by the end of his career. And I think that, that if he had lived or if he had still coached, he's still alive. If he had still coached up to this day, I think he might have changed his stance. Because my high school certainly has. He's no longer the coach. But between 1995 and 2021, there have been black quarterbacks in my high school. And that's a welcome development. And it's a development I think you've seen in high schools all over the country, especially in the South, but all over the country. You've seen it in colleges all over the country. You've seen it in the professional ranks. More and more black athletes given the opportunity to play the pinnacle position. That is a positive development. But a problematic one, too, if you start to dig beneath the surface. Here's one reason it's problematic. You still, in my experience, will never see a mediocre or below average black quarterback. 
maybe in the NFL, but even then they won't be around very long. They will soon be replaced. I promise you that. You will never see a black high school quarterback as bad as I was. Because we still have this issue where, and you see this outside of sports, right? You see this with President Obama is a great example. The door has been cracked a little bit, or the table has had one seat added to it, but only only for the most exemplary of candidates. Think about a white president and how many scandals they're allowed to have, how much they're allowed to be accused of sexual assault. And I'm not just talking about Trump, Clinton. Do your research. Both of them seem like some horrible fucking humans. And they can get elected. A white quarterback like myself can have a weak arm, slow feet, get suspended for smoking weed, not participate in the team prayer, argue with the coach about participating in standing for the national anthem before the game, and play. I don't think a black quarterback, a black 17-year-old could get away with that. Shit, I had a white teammate tell the coach in the middle of the game, fuck you, to his face. And as far as I know, wasn't punished. I guarantee you a black black player, that would not have happened. I don't mean the cursing. I mean the, the lack of punishment. So while it's a great development to see barriers removed and to see black athletes getting to play quarterback at all different levels of sports, I can't help but wonder how much further we have to go to really really be able to pat ourselves on the back. And I don't remember who it was. I've heard this comment made before by comedians, but also sociologists and other people who are a little more serious and studious, in that we can't get too excited for progress in any arena, whether we're talking about sports or politics, when only the best of the best black athletes or black political candidates or black actors are allowed in. <coughs> Ooh, excuse me. I tried to fight a cough back, and instead I did worse. And y'all know I'm not going to go back and edit that shit out. Sorry for your ears, especially if you were didn't hear that coming. But that true progress is when mediocre black people elevate to the position of CEO or to the position of quarterback or to the position of president. And we're a long way away from that. So let's be careful as society not to get too excited when we've allowed the best of the best to finally ascend to, to certain heights. That's a step in the right direction, I guess. It's better than nothing. But I don't think it means that racism is, is dying a, a quick death. And partially because I also still hear how we talk about black athletes. Think about those of you who have kept up with the NFL draft this year. Think about how black quarterback candidates are talked about as they come out of college. Google what has been said about Justin Fields, who was recently drafted in the first round by the Chicago Bears, high in the first round, mind you, but how his draft stock kept tumbling leading up to the draft. And it was unclear why. How there were rumors of lack of a work ethic, 
rumors of not being coachable, things like that. And how white quarterback, <clears throat> Mac Jones, continued to rise in their in the estimates of draft experts based on their intangible factors, not on their play on the field. So I do think there's still, A, we have this problem that only the best of the best seem to be able to ascend. But even once we allow the best of the best to ascend, the way we talk about black quarterbacks and black presidents and black actors is still often done so from a racial lens. And then the final issue that I see as an adult, as an adult on a high school campus that's 80% black, as an adult on a high school campus that has an incredibly successful football team and an incredibly successful black basketball team, black basketball team, they are black and they do play basketball. I guess that might be a Freudian slip. I wonder and worry about White people falling in love with the blindside narrative when it comes to sports, specifically football and basketball. And what I mean by the blindside narrative is this idea that so many white people fall in love with the idea that the only path to success, that the only path to college For young black athletes, young black students, young black men, it's through athletics. And I wonder myself, am I not putting my black students in a box, even my successful athletes, in a box and only viewing them as athletes and primarily viewing them as athletes? and primarily viewing them as vessels of athletic success. Because once again, that's not something that happens to white students and white men, even really good athletic white men are allowed to wear numerous hats, are allowed to have numerous stories told about them. But I wonder how many of my colleagues in the teaching profession, and I wonder how often my, I myself have talked to black students on our campus about their success in the, in the game last night. And that on the surface isn't bad, but then I wonder how often that's all we've talked to them about ad nauseum. How we've only talked about their success as a football player and their success as a basketball player. How we've become enamored with the Sandra Bullock narrative and we're going to help these these black kids get to college based purely on their athletic success. And how we're writing a story and a narrative for these black kids without their even realizing it. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is that as we open the door athletically, wide open to black athletes and play in any sport, and even go out of our way as coaches and educators and as adults to help these black athletes succeed in their sport and help them get into college and get scholarships. How we better be careful not to get too excited and pat ourselves on the back too much. Yes, it's better. 
somewhat than the story I was telling in the first part of this podcast. Yes, it's better than being the white adults who actively put up barriers to the success of black athletes. I think we are moving beyond that as a society. But I still think we have a long fucking way to go. Because I still see too many well-meaning white folks, and I'm talking about administrators, coaches, teachers, fans, who are now willing to let black athletes into the family, but only if that family is athletic. And how often we talk about and to these young black men relating to sports and sports only. And how excited we get when they do well on the field and never talk about books or never talk about politics or never talk about law or sociology or physics or chemistry or poetry or beauty or death. How we never talk about ideas, in other words. And so that's my fear with the changes that I've seen athletically is that white society is overjoyed with this idea of letting black kids play and play any position and play quarterback and how we're going to help them get into college, how we're going to Sandra Bullock these kids. But what if Michael Orr, not what if, because I know he is, but imagine Michael Orr is the, the football player whom the book and movie Blindside is about. What if being a great football player, what if he's so much more than that? Because I know he is. Are we giving these black young people a chance to be more than great athletes? Because at the end of the day, I don't know if systemic racism has really been weakened by having a bunch of successful black athletes, even at the highest levels of success. Now, you could argue maybe it has. And the argument is that these black athletes are going to make a lot of money and wealth, and that wealth is going to create opportunities for other people in their communities. And that's a strong argument, so I'm not discounting it. But I would point out that even most of the most successful college athletes, let alone high school athletes, aren't going to make it to the professional level and aren't going to make that kind of wealth. And so I'm just worried that as society... We've opened the door to black athletic success at all levels and all positions while failing to consider how many other doors still remain closed. So if you're a black educator, sorry, if you're a white educator of a black student, if you're a a white coach of black athletes, if you're a white parent or supporter of a high school or college athletic team, Ask yourself some tough questions. Especially if you work on a high school campus or work with young athletes, how often do you talk to them about anything other than their athletic success? Because I'm afraid, and I see it every day, with talented, and I don't mean athletically talented, I mean intellectually talented black men who think their only path to success 
and their only utility is in the athletic arena. I'm afraid that the more white people get excited about about providing athletic opportunities for black people, the more we ignore all the other opportunities we're not providing. The more we're losing out on black lawyers and accountants and doctors and veterinarians and architects and civil engineers and chemists and historians and poets and authors. So that's that's kind of where this podcast today's episode has really really got me kind of in a Dr. Jekyll and Hyde moment. We've come so far that I don't think there are as many coaches today that would tell a black student that you're not going to start on my football team. I think the number of coaches who would say that to a black student is much smaller than it was 25 years ago when it happened to my friend. I think the number of high school football coaches who would on the record tell a newspaper reporter that their black star athlete wasn't going to be academically eligible. I think the percentage and number of those coaches has reduced greatly. I think the number of high school programs that wouldn't allow a black student to play quarterback or any other position on any other team is greatly reduced. But I also think I'm not sure if that baby step is really the progress we think it is, white folks. Thirty-two black quarterbacks in the NFL is great. But is it really that great if we still have thirty-two white owners? White owners who are using their billions of dollars to support laws that suppress the voting power of black communities? Sending black high school athletes to college to play college football is great. But is it really that great when we're ignoring non-athletes or non-successful athletes as teachers and coaches and adults? Think of how much support a successful or talented black athlete gets on a high school campus. How much love and praise. Does the clumsy black C student on campus get that same love and praise? Get the same opportunities? Are we sending black kids to college to be lawyers and doctors and accountants and architects and civil engineers and poets and historians? Or are we just sending them to college to play football and getting excited about it? I don't know. I think we can do both. I think we can open the doors athletically and continue to open other doors. But humans only have a finite amount of energy, a finite attention span, and a finite amount of time in your day. So if you're a white adult who works with black students and black youth and works in black sports, there's only so many comments you're going to make to the young people you work with. There's only so many interactions you're going to have with the young people you work with. And I myself am guilty of this. I've taught some incredible black athletes and I love sports. And so it's natural and normal for me to be excited about their athletic success. But these young black men I teach are so much more than athletes, or at least they should be. And they need to know that. They need to hear that I know that. 
How often am I talking to them about history and ideas? And things other than what they do on a Friday night under those bright lights. As always, I really appreciate y'all coming along for this journey. I really appreciate you letting me kind of unfold myself to the world. Because like always, these stories are just as much about myself as they are about anybody else. Trying to figure out what the fuck. And most importantly, as always, I love the feedback. So continue to reach out. I'm not on social media much anymore. So if you've tried to reach out to me in the last few months on social media and I haven't responded, it's not because I'm a dick. It's just because I can't do that anymore. Social media is just not healthy for me. But you can always email me, JamesLincoln313. I would love to hear your own stories, your own feedback, your comments, your questions, your criticisms, you name it. As we all continue to take this journey into whiteness and address ourselves in the world around us. Y'all be well, be safe, be good. Episodes 9 and 10 will be coming very soon as we wrap up Season 2. Peace and love, you guys. Bye.